So, uh, not making light of real and serious problems, um, my illustrations this morning to get us going are about uh, people's personal struggles and their worst day ever. So I have a few um, pictures that are going to help you to sort of join in. Uh, Again, it feels a little bit funny, but uh, we're going to go with it anyway, because we all have personal things that we go through as well as bigger things uh, that go on in life. But um, I want to show you a few pictures of uh, somebody's very bad day. So the first picture is of uh, a man who built a new house near a cow pasture. Um, But then he went away for three months to Florida and came back and the cows had moved into his house and used it as cows will, uh, for three months. Uh, That was a very bad day for that man. The second picture is about a man who stuck his head into a hole in a tree to see what was in there and discovered a porcupine was in there. Curiosity. Got to watch out for it. The third one is an interesting one. It comes in two parts. Number one, this man parked his car, went into the building, and came out, and his car had been crashed into. Some of you have experienced that. But to add insult to injury, the car had been pushed up onto the sidewalk by the accident, and he got a ticket for parking on the sidewalk. (laughs) Not a very good day. Next one is a very expensive mistake. He made a mistake at work. Have any of you ever made a mistake at work? Have any of you ever made a mistake that cost $135 million? When he dropped the satellite while moving it uh, in the building there, that was a very expensive mistake and a very bad day. The next one uh, we've had fun with around the office this week, poor Megan. Poor Megan forgot to tighten the lid on the paint-shaking machine at Home Depot and ended up looking like this at work one day. Let's all say it together. Poor Megan. And here's the last one for us this morning. This poor man found this beautiful site in the pasture to ask his wife, ask his soon-to-be wife to marry him and dropped the diamond into the gopher hole right below them. This is her. I couldn't figure out if she was screaming or laughing uh, while he was reaching his hand down in there. Uh, so, so bad things happen, and as, uh, as Tanya had referred to, uh, there's a book that you may be familiar with if you work with children. It's called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. We've all had them at one time or another. And our passage this morning in Scripture isn't just a single day. It's a whole experience, but it is, for us, something we're going to look at today And it is a very bad day for the people on this ship with Paul, the apostle. So as we get ready to look into this and to ask God to teach us something from his word, let's stop and pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. It is holy. It is set aside so that we can learn about you. We can can learn how to live this life in relationship with you. And so teach us this morning by your spirit and by your word. Open up our heart and mind to understand what about this is to be applied to my life so that I may walk closely with you each and every day. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are almost to the very end of the book of Acts. So if you want to find this passage today, it's on page 994 in the Pew Bible there, um, the black one there in front of you. We're looking at uh, this event that takes place. It's a series of events. Uh, none of them are good. It starts off with the fact that Paul, the apostle, is already arrested, but he is going to be taken to Rome. Because he is a Roman citizen, he's going to be taken to Rome uh, for his trial. And so in order to get from Caesarea, near Jerusalem, to Rome, he has to take a ship. Uh, and here's the events that take place uh, on this journey that he's on. We're going to learn that God is able to overcome every obstacle and difficulty uh, to bring his word to the people that he's called to hear it. But before we get started, I want to just recognize what we see here at the beginning of uh, chapter 27. I want you to, to watch uh, clearly God has designed us to be in relationship with others. So before we get into the difficulties that are going to come upon this journey here, I want you to recognize that Paul is not alone. Paul has friends, and God has provided those friends for him. Number one is Luke. Luke is the one who wrote the book of Acts. Luke traveled with him on this journey as well. Luke has not deserted him because he's been arrested. Luke has gotten the privilege or, or the permission to travel along with him. But he's not the only one. There are others as well who are joining him. There's also the, the Roman centurion who is responsible to get Paul from Caesarea to Rome and to get him there in one piece so that he can stand trial. That man's name is Julius, like Julius Caesar, right? Julius. Julius is um, going to be an important uh, character throughout this story, so, so pay attention to his relationship with Paul. First of all, he's assigned to get Paul from point A to point B. Uh, he needs to keep Paul a prisoner, but also keep him healthy and strong so that he may be able to, to fulfill uh, his part of the trial that's laying uh, before him in Rome. He's been, he's been tasked with that. There was also uh, another, there were other people on the ship, um, but watch what happens when they, when they begin their journey, um, they boarded the ship, uh, they put out to sea, and then what happens is, uh, verse, verse 3 we will start, the next day we put out, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and allowed him to go and visit his friends to receive care from them. So already this Julius guy, we can see that he's a little soft-hearted. He, he, he's, he's friendly towards Paul. Even though Paul is a prisoner and Paul is not considered, um, you know, a friend of Rome, you know, he's going to, to stand trial. This guy, for whatever reason, uh, allows Paul to even visit his friends. So when they put into a port, if there's any Christians there, Paul is, is alerted or Paul knows that they're there. He wants to go and find them, and, and he's allowed to do that. So this, this idea that he's sort of uh, chained in a dungeon in the bottom of the ship or whatever um, is sort of broken, right? He, he's not. He has a certain amount of freedom, which Julius allows him to have. So the interesting thing is that, that Paul, who was Saul, remember, 
who was not a very nice person. In fact, he was the enemy of the Christian church before his own conversion, has become a very loyal friend and has other very loyal friends. He, he seems to be friendly enough that even his captors befriend him. Something about Paul has changed, right? He's friendly with Christians, but he's also friendly with non-Christians, a little like Jesus, who was considered to be a friend of sinners, right? Jesus would, would have supper with other people and people outside of his little small circle of, of disciples. He would, he would allow his life to be shared with others. Paul is an interesting character for us because he didn't confuse his own strength with the need to be independent or self-reliant. There's a little confusion sometimes within us and in our culture, right? If you're a strong individual, you don't need anybody else, right? That's sort of how those two things go together. Like, I'm strong enough, I can handle this myself, right? There's something about the self, something about our, our, our misinterpretation of strength that we think, well, well, then I can do this alone. I don't need anybody else. And I want you to hear, before we get into the, the craziness that's going on here, Paul is not alone. He not only has God, right, in the Spirit with him, but he has people in his life that he has built relationship with or that he's currently building relationship with. And those people God will use to help Paul through the difficult times around him. So what can we take from that? When you're going through difficult times, God may have provided some friends in your life who you need to lean on, and that's okay. That's the way God intended it to be. As I often refer back to the creation story in the beginning of Genesis, the only thing that wasn't good that God said, you know, this is good, and that is good, and this is good, and that is good, he said, but it's not good for man to be alone that sense of isolation and loneliness, which often comes at us when we're going through a difficult time, right? How many times have you been in the midst of a struggle, in the midst of a trial, and someone has tried to reach out to you, or you are thinking, maybe I should reach out to someone else, but then this thought comes in your head. Well, nobody understands what I'm going through. What you've done is built a barrier around yourself, like a wall around yourself. Nobody understands what I'm going through. And so you separate yourself. Maybe not intentionally, but it happens because there's, there's something inside of us that is, is, is insidiously independent. And that independence needs to be addressed. We are dependent on God, and God has made us to be dependent on others, to need others. It's okay to need others. You don't have to go it alone. Did you hear me? For some of you, that is a personal message for you this morning. Don't try to do it alone. Paul was not on this ship alone. He had others with him, and they helped to support him. And even those who he was meeting maybe for the first time, like Julius, in, in, in some way, Paul built a bridge so that Julius was kind to him and allowed him to have friends who could care for him. 
So let's get a little more into what we're going to see happening here. The second point I want to make about this passage, about the story of this journey, is that God cares even when we've been careless. Another point that we need to understand from this story is that God does give direction, and the direction is ignored. And so bad things happen when we don't follow God's way. Bad things happen when we ignore God's direction. And that's what happens here in this story. Going on to uh, verse 8, with still more difficulty, we sailed along the coast, because there's difficulty right now. There's, there's trouble uh, with being able to make it on this journey. With more difficulty, we sailed along the coast, and we came to a place called Fair Havens, near the city of Lycia. Now, verse 9, by now, much time had passed, and the voyage was already dangerous. Since the Day of Atonement, which is in the fall, was already over, Paul gave his advice, and he told the men, men, I can see that this voyage is headed towards disaster and heavy loss, not only of the cargo in the ship, but also of our lives. And here's where the mistake takes place. Verse 11, but the centurion paid attention to the captain and the owner of the ship rather than to what Paul said. Now, makes sense, right? The centurion doesn't work for Paul, right? The centurion isn't, you know, on the ship that Paul owns. Paul is a prisoner. So logic sometimes is our enemy, right? We think, well, that's not logical. Why would he listen to Paul, a prisoner? Right? He should listen to a captain who spends his whole life on the seas. He knows what he's doing, right? But Paul was giving advice that was contrary to logic. That happens a lot in the Bible. If you read it and read through its stories and its narrations of things, it's like, wait a minute. I would have done what the centurion did. I would have said, well, Paul, you know, that's good advice and all, but let me go to the experts. Let me find out what the experts have to say. And then you go to the expert, and the expert says the exact opposite of what the man of God said. And you say, well, actually, I think I'm going to go with the experts with this one. Big mistake. Big mistake. So as he goes on, the centurion pays attention to the captain, the owner of the ship, which is logical. Since the harbor that they were in at Fair Haven was unsuitable to winter in, in other words, they couldn't stay there for long, the majority, another thing we often do out of logic, right? Well, let's take a vote. How many of you vote? We should move on. Oh, raise your hands. Okay, majority rules. Let's go. The majority decided to set sail from there, hoping somehow to reach Phoenix, a harbor on Crete, facing the southwest and northwest, and to winter there instead. All right. Again, we have to just read it as it is and try to understand some of the principles that we're getting to see in God's Word. Now, Luke has already told us that the Feast of Atonement was over with, which means that it, it, it's at least early October, because that's when that feast takes place. And in those days... People seldom sailed after September. So they were already into dangerous 
time of year when the storms start, start going, right? And they, and they will stop sailing in that part of the ocean from September until early spring because the waters are just too dangerous. The wind is just too strong. The cloudy weather also makes it impossible to navigate because this is when they navigated using the stars and the sun, right? They didn't have radar and sonar and all the other things that we have. So they only had the sky to depend on. Well, if it's cloudy and rainy and stormy and you can't see anything, you can't, you can't drive. You can't go anywhere safely. And that's the situation that they put themselves in by not listening to Paul's advice. Paul advises them, I can see that this voyage is headed for disaster. But the leaders of that voyage, the captain, the centurion, the others who were put in places of authority, decided to go their own way. And they made the wrong choice, which affected everyone on the ship. The problem Paul and the others had was because their advice was ignored. God, however, intervenes. He intervenes to help them in spite of this mistake. Now, he doesn't wipe away the consequences of the mistake, but he helps them nonetheless. Often when we make a mistake and we, we realize it's a mistake and we pray to God, oh God, help us, what we want is all the consequences of that mistake to be miraculously gone. But that's not what happens in God's word. That's not what happens in this situation. As we continue to read, we'll see that God gets them out of the problem, but the consequences that they face are still there. But God in his mercy comes through. He takes this situation and turns it around because of Paul's trust in him. Paul trusts in God. He understands that God is able to do anything. He understands God's power. And he understands that God can take something that's bad and actually turn it into something good. In the end. So let's read on. Verse 13. When the gentle south wind sprang up, they thought that they had achieved their purpose. In other words, this was a sign. We can, we can move forward. So they weighed anchor, which means they took up their anchor, and they sailed along the shore of Crete. But before long, a fierce wind called a nor'easter. We've got nor'easters here too, don't we? A nor'easter rushed down from the island. And since the ship was caught and unable to head into the wind, we gave way to it. And were driven along after running along under the shelter of the little island called Kada, we were barely able to get control of the skiff. After hoisting it up, that's the smaller boat, like the lifeboat, boat, right? They, they hoisted it up onto the bigger boat. They used ropes and tackle and girded the ship. Fearing that they would run aground, they lowered the drift anchor, and in this way they were driven along. So the anchor helps steady them a little bit in the storm so they don't flip over, right? Because they were being severely battered by the storm, they began to jettison the cargo. You know what that means? Throw it overboard. 
Jettison the cargo means get the heavy stuff off the boat because we're going down. We're sinking, right? So there's the loss of whatever money they were going to make, whatever, whatever they were moving along as cargo. They just begin to throw it into the ocean. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Now, the tackle, you guys, if you don't... John Colby could probably help us. He's a boater. But, but the, the tackle are like the big ropes and the heavy anchors and the different things that they help to, to hold the ship together and to, to run the ship. They, everything that they could throw overboard, they threw overboard. And then for many days, neither the sun nor the stars appeared. And the severe storm kept raging. Finally, all hope was fading that they would be saved. Difficulty went on and on and on in their lives to the point where all hope was abandoned. They, 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 they had no idea how they could live through this situation. So let's think about that for a moment. The captain and the crew, they made the false assumption that that soft, that soft southerly wind was a sign for them to move forward. Be careful with signs. You want to make sure that they're, they're from God and not just something that you're dreaming up. Verse 14 says, but not long after that, the nor'easter set in, and they do all types of things to try to stay afloat. But eventually, all hope is gone. But not for Paul. And this is key. All hope was gone, but not for Paul. He somehow is able to stay calm in the midst of this disaster. How do we know that? Well, because he begins to speak in the midst of this disaster. When all hope is gone, it says in verse 27, continuing in in chapter 27, when the 14th night came, 14 nights of a storm, we were drifting in the Adriatic Sea, and after midnight, the sailors thought that they were approaching land. Just before that, where are we supposed to read? Verse 23, actually verse 21, since they had no food for a long time, Paul then stood up among them and said, you men should have followed my advice. Like Paul could not resist the I told you so. How many of you can't resist the I told you so? When you've told someone what will happen if they do that and then they go and do it and then... Exactly what you said happens. It's almost impossible to not say, I told you so. I told you this would happen. And that's exactly what Paul said. So, so when you do that, you're in Paul's company. It's not so bad, right? I told you this would happen. I urged you not to do this, right? You would sustain this kind of damage and this loss. But now... So all hope in Paul is not lost, because now I urge you to take courage, because there will be no loss of any of your lives, but only of the ship. And here's why Paul has such courage. For last night, an angel of God, of the God I belong to and the God I serve, stood by me and said, don't be afraid, Paul. It's like the, the, the full-time job of angels, I think, is like just to say, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. So many times in Scripture, when the angel, an angel comes from God, the angel says, don't be afraid. Take courage. 
So don't be afraid, Paul. It is necessary for you to appear before Caesar. In other words, you're going to get to the end. That's where you're going, to Caesar. And indeed, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. So take courage, men. This is Paul speaking again. Take courage, men, because I believe God that it will be just the way that he told me it would be. But we have to run aground on some islands. So a little more bad news. It's going to be just the way they do But we're going to run aground on some islands, right? So he's got, the, he's got the picture. He's laying it out before them. So that's on the 13th day. And then on the 14th night, we were drifting again in the Adriatic Sea. And about midnight, the sailors began to realize they were approaching land. They took some soundings. They, they wanted to see how deep it was and found that it was 120 feet deep. When they had sailed a little further and sounded again, they found that it was only 90 feet deep. Then, fearing that we might run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight to come. Four anchors. That's a lot, right? I always think of a ship that only has one anchor. I didn't realize they had four, you know? They, they, they just threw them all in to see if it, there's any way they could slow this down so they didn't crash against the rocks. The captain and the crew had made the wrong assumption. They had headed out when they were warned not to. And in the midst of this storm now that they're all experiencing, because it's not like Paul's in like a space bubble. Paul's not getting wet. Paul's not rocking back and forth. No, no, no. Paul's in there with them, right? Paul's going through the same struggle, the same difficulties that they're all going through. But Paul has a different attitude. Paul understands God's relationship to him and to the whole ship. And he begins to stand in that truth and in that trust in such a way that the tables shift here as to who's in charge. This is where it begins to happen. Remember before he's speaking and they don't listen to him because he's just a prisoner. We're going to talk to the captain and we're going to talk to the centurion because they're the guys in charge. They're the ones who will make the decisions. From this point on, Paul makes all the decisions. They, 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 they've lost all hope in themselves and they're going to put their hope in Paul and in Paul's God, right? In the, in the God that Paul believes in. So as they've abandoned their, their, their hope, he stays calm. He trusts not in them, not in the ship, not in the crew, not in the captain. He trusts in God. He trusts in God. This is the key to Paul staying calm. This is the key to us staying calm. No matter what's going on, our trust, our, our anchor, or all four of our anchors, however many anchors we have, should be in God. That's the key for us to take from this passage, right? Paul had already been through so many difficulties and dangers in his life. He had already experienced so many horrible things. He'd been stoned to death. You know, he'd been whipped. He'd been thrown in prison. He'd been beaten. You know, he, all these things had happened to him. And instead of saying, oh, no, not another one, not again, oh, no, you know, he, he, he puts his anchor down deep. He says, God's going to do what God says he's going to do. God's going to fulfill his promise. I love 
that he explains to them where his words are coming from. This is key. This was key in the Old Testament with the prophets. This is key for, for the apostles and the disciples. That, that the wisdom that he's showing or the calm that he's showing isn't from himself. It's from God. It's from trusting in God. His language, he says, you know, as he explains to them, he said, the God, the one that I belong to, the God that I serve, right? He puts himself in the right place in relationship to God and these people. This is the one who told me, we're going to make it. The ship's not going to make it, but we're going to make it. And I believe in God. Verse 25, so take courage because I believe God that it will be just the way it was told to me. That's the kind of faith we need to emulate. When God has told you, when God has spoken to you, when God's word speaks to us, it's going to be just the way God said it's going to be. Amen? It's not going to shift and change. God is not changing. His word is not changing. It is the same as he sent it forth to be. It is. This is powerful for us to remember. When we're in the midst of a storm, it's not that God is changing his mind. And now God is going to leave you on your own. Because he said he's never leave you or forsake you. But I feel all alone. Well, then your feelings are wrong. Did that hurt? Some of you looked hurt when I said that. That hurt you? Your feelings are wrong? Is that the first time you ever heard that? Feelings can fool you, right? So in the midst of a storm, in the midst of a difficulty, in the midst of a shipwreck, your feelings might be all over the place, right? But his faith, his, his anchor was in what God said, and that God does what God says he's going to do, no matter what. That's why Paul wasn't freaking out when everyone else was freaking out. He does an interesting thing here. He doesn't actually ask them to believe what he's saying. He declares his own personal belief. He says, I believe God will do what he says he's going to do. He doesn't say, you need to believe. We do too much of that sometimes in our sharing of our faith, right? Your faith may be strong, and your faith needs to be an example for the people around you, but you can't get them to believe at the level that you're believing. They need to grow. They need to see it. They need to experience it the way that you did and I did, and the way that we still do. So be careful with that because there's a little nuance there. You've got to be careful. When, when someone is struggling and you're, you're going through that with them, don't start saying, well, you need to change your, you, you need to do this and you need to do that. And you need, just, just do it. Just live it yourself. Just live it in front of them and live it to the fullest for them so they can lean on your faith as you're going through the experience with them. Now, at this moment, at this moment, when, when everything is falling apart, I would be praying that the winds would stop. I'd be remembering the story of Jesus on, 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 on the Sea of Galilee and the big storm that was going on, the disciples saying, oh, we're going to die, and Jesus is asleep, and then he wakes up, and then he says, shh, hush, storm. And so in, in my limited faith, because I'm growing too, along with you, I'd be saying, this would be a great time in this story for the Apostle Paul to say, just as Jesus did, I speak to the storm. Stop. But that's not what happens. 
That's not what happens. Let's keep, keep thinking about what, what's happening here. There's still another dark night. You look at verse 27 through 29. They were praying for daylight to come, right? They're praying for daylight to come. Some of, some of them were just so afraid that they're going to hit the rocks and the whole ship was going to come apart, and eventually it does. Some of the sailors were trying to escape, and, and Paul gets a word or Paul sees it happening and says, hey, if they escape, we're all dead. Keep them here. Now, what's the motive for that? God said he was going to save all of them. If they went off in that little ship, now the storm is so crazy that even the big ship is falling apart. So if they went off in that little ship, they were goners, right? There's just no way. It would have capsized. That would be the end of them. So Paul was actually compassionate in trying to keep them with, with him because God's promise was that all of them would be saved. And he believed it. He believed it so much that he didn't let those guys escape. They actually, they take the, they take the boat back up, and the guys have to come back on the ship, and then they cut that little boat free, and it just goes off into the ocean. That's the end of it. Who knows what happens? But at least all of the people that God promised to save were still there. So here's another thing that we can take from this. In the midst of this dark night, these 14 days of storm, this breaking apart, and all this kind of stuff that's happening, Paul decides it's a good time for a sandwich. In verse 33, after they cut the skiff away and everybody's together on this ship that's falling apart, When it was about daylight, it says that Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have been waiting and going without food. I don't know if there was a fast going on or if they just couldn't eat. We don't know for sure. Luke doesn't tell us that Paul said we should fast for 14 days. He didn't say that. Maybe the storm was so crazy they just couldn't get a meal together. I don't know. But they'd gone 14 days without any food, and they'd eaten nothing, it says, So, verse 34, Paul says, I urge you to take some food, for this is for your survival. Very practical. If they're going to have to swim for shore, they better have some energy in their bodies, some carbohydrates to burn up as they fight the waves to get to the beach, right? So, they eat some food. God guides them. Paul guides them, and they eat some food. And he assures them again, the end of verse 34. Since none of you will lose even a hair from your head. I wish I was on that ship. (laughs) None of you will lose a hair from your head. Beautiful promise from God. (laughs) Anyway, after he said this, now, now, now what does this remind you of? And he had taken some bread. He gave thanks to God in the presence of all of them, and then he broke the bread. Looks so Last Supper-ish, right? Like, like Jesus with his disciples breaking the bread. He thanked God in the presence of all of them, and after he broke it, he began to eat. And verse 36, the result of this was they were all encouraged, and they took some food themselves. They followed his example. In all, here's where we get... Luke, the physician, there were 276 of us on that ship. He wanted to make sure we knew it wasn't like two or three people gathered there on the ship. 276. That's more than he's here this morning, right? It was a lot of people that God cared about and that God was going to save 
through this storm. It says, when they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by now throwing the grain overboard. I mean, everything was going overboard because they were trying to keep this ship together. So thanking God in advance of the solution. Paul's thanking God in the midst of the storm. This wasn't on the beach after they all made it safely to the beach. This was in the middle of the crazy, wild, breaking up of the ship and people, people sliding back and forth. And, you know, like, this is when that's happening, Paul says, let's thank God for this food. I love that. And it's another lesson for us. In the middle of your storm, stop and thank God for the bread. For whatever you have that you can partake in. This will help and encourage you and others. Now, Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't say anything other than, you know, Let's, let's take this food for our strength let's, so that we'll survive, right? Because you're, you're all going to make it. And then he thanks God in the presence of them all, and he begins to eat. He has a calmness about him, which is supernatural, because the storm is still raging, and it's still nighttime. Because it says when it was about daylight, so it, the sun hadn't even come up yet. Right? I don't even know if the sun comes up. I just think it's daylight. So the light comes through the clouds a little bit. Thanking God in advance. There's some strong faith there. When you're in the middle of your struggle, when you're in the middle of your chemo treatments, when you're in the middle of your divorce, when you're in the middle of whatever you're going through, can you stop and thank God? For something? I'm not saying you'd have to thank him for the storm, but you can thank him for being God. You can thank him for, for watching over you. You can thank him for the hope that you have that he's going to bring you through, right? You can thank him for something. And when you do that, it's like a switch is changed inside of you. Something goes on when you stop and acknowledge God. The God of the universe is there with you and has supplied bread, a sandwich, something for you to eat, to strengthen you and encourage you. Sometimes we have to look for those opportunities. Sometimes we have to really struggle to find it, but there's something you can be thankful to God for. And in being thankful, you're turning your attention back to God. And off of the storm, even if it's just for a moment, it does something to begin to change and encourage you and encourage others. Because a Thanksgiving celebration during a dark storm is a very powerful way to break fear and anxiety and worry and to reaffirm your faith in who God is. Who is God in the midst of your storm? God is still in charge in the midst of your storm. God still has a plan in the midst of your storm. God hasn't abandoned you in the midst of your storm. So by giving him thanks, it changes your perspective, gets your eyes off your problem for a moment, and helps you to keep your eyes on the problem solver. 
God is the problem solver. He is the one who can get you through the storm. He is the one who can break through in the midst of that storm. He is the one that can just go with you through that storm and bring you all the way through. So again, this is a good opportunity. And if I were God and I were writing this story, this is where the storm would stop and everything would come together. But I'm not. So we have to keep reading. Because in this story... You would think that this is a good time for the storm to, to, to stop. And maybe, you know, when he lifts the bread, some angels could sing. Ah. <laughs> right? But that's not what happens, actually. In fact, there's more wreckage ahead for this poor guy. He's got problem after problem after problem after problem. But he's continuing to remain strong in his faith. He's continuing to, to bring the attention back to God even though there's more wreckage ahead. Paul is not superhuman. Paul is human like you and I. We have to remember this. This is why I'm not calling him Saint Paul or the Apostle Paul, because when we do that, when we put a title on somebody like that, we, we sort of dehumanize them. He's a human like we are, but he is showing an extraordinary faith in the midst of an extraordinary trial. Now, there's more wreckage ahead. They keep trying to lighten the load and throw the grain overboard. And then finally, daylight comes. They could see a beach, which they wanted to run the ship up onto that nice soft sand, right? So they cut their anchors. Remember the four anchors that they had dragging them and trying to slow them down? They loosened the rudders, it says. They hoisted the sail, and they headed for the beach. And then in verse 41, but, there's always a but, They headed for the beach. Would have been great if they could have sailed in on the nice soft sand, but instead they struck a sandbar and ran the ship aground away from the shore. They didn't get to come right into the the safe harbor, to the shore. They struck it. And then, because the waves were so powerful, the bow of the the ship, the front of the ship was on on that on that sandbar, but the back of it was just getting pounded and pounded and pounded until it began to just fall apart under the strain of all those waves. But that's not the end of their troubles, especially for Paul. Because read with me in verse, th- verse 42. They realize that the stern is breaking up from the pounding of the waves. The ship is falling apart. So the soldiers... Not the centurion, but the soldiers planned to kill the prisoners. Nice Romans that they are. But we've seen this again and again in the book of Acts, right? When the jailer was going to kill himself, actually, it was because he knew that, that one of the punishments for losing your prisoner was death in the Roman military, right? So you had a prisoner, your life depended on keeping that prisoner alive or, or from escaping, and this is what happens. So the, the soldiers planned to kill the prisoners, including Paul. All right? Again, he's not in a bubble. He's not in like the St. Paul, you know, bubble that gets to float. Of, no, he's in there with all these people going through all these troubles. But God used his friendship with that centurion to save Paul and all the rest of them. Because again, God's promise was all of them were going to make it. He would not allow that to take place. 
And he told them to swim to shore or to find a piece of that ship to float ashore on. And in this way, it says in verse 44, all 276 of them finally reached the shore. Woo! Hallelujah. That was a journey and a half. Trouble upon trouble upon trouble. Now, it's not over. There's more trouble. Look at chapter 28, verse 3. Paul's just helping. He's, he's being a good servant. He's helping. He's collecting some firewood so they can dry out. He's a humble servant kind of guy. And he reaches to get a piece of firewood. And this viper bites him. Come on. If I were Paul, which I'm not, I would have looked to the heavens and said, Really? <laughs> really? A viper bites me after all that. Haven't I been through enough already? Right? Have you ever felt that way? On your big horrible day? Oh, your big horrible month or your big horrible year? One thing after another after another. And you're like, okay, finally. We've made it to the shore. We're building a fire. We're going to dry out our clothes. Let me just reach for this. Gets bit by a viper. Now, a viper is a very bad snake. We don't have bad snakes in New England, thank the Lord, except for people who are crazy and have them as pets. But other than that, out in nature, you're not going to get bit by a viper. At this point, honestly, I'd be like, God, you've got to be kidding me. Paul remains calm, and he simply shakes it off, like Taylor Swift. Shake it off. Shake it off. I'm like, how does the man do it? He's amazing. He just shakes it off. It says right here in scripture. Shakes the viper off. When the local people saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to one another, oh, there's no doubt that this guy's a murderer or something. They don't know his background, but they figured this is God's way of getting justice on him. He escaped the sea, but now the viper is going to kill him. He shook it off into the fire and suffered no harm at all. They expected that he would begin to swell up and finally drop dead. And after they waited for a long time and saw that nothing unusual had happened to him, they now changed their minds and said, he's a God. He's a God to be able to do that. Now we know and Paul knows he is not a God, but he serves the God, the one and only God that can save you from this kind of stuff that will be with you through your storm, that can bring you to the shore, that can even save you from the bite of the viper. That's the kind of God that we serve. Hallelujah. This story should encourage us. No matter how bad your troubles are, no matter how many of them come, one right after the other, like waves on the ocean, God is able to save you, to bring you through. And the results of that are amazing. But I'm just going to share with you Malta. Do you, anyone ever been to Malta? I want to go. Oh, of course. Bolivars have been there. Anybody else? Oh, okay, okay, Malta. I want to go there. I was looking at all the pictures of it. It's so beautiful and amazing. But the thing that's amazing is, so Paul, he's been there in that area just a little while. He hears that the governors, I think it's the governor, this guy is sick. His father's sick. And so Paul goes in and visits him, prays for him, lays hands on him. He's healed. And after that, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came, and they were healed. 
So they heaped many honors on us, and when we sailed away, they gave us everything we needed. The cool thing about Malta is that history actually records for us that this guy, Publius, came to Christ and becomes the first pastor in Malta. And by the third century AD, almost every inhabitant of the island, which is many people, were Christians because they shared their faith and shared their faith and shared their faith. The signs of an early Christian community can still be seen today. Those of you who have visited, that's why you visited. They can still be seen today. In fact, in that society, religion, I don't know what that means to them, but religion is still taught in the public schools. Amazing. (sighs) And there are more than 365 churches on the island. And it's a tiny island. They say there's one for every day of the year, 365 churches. The size of the island is 122 square miles. That's Holden, Worcester, Rutland, and Paxton. I did the math. What's the square mile of Holden? I did the math. So just, just that little place has 365 churches. Christianity put its roots down so deep in an island that was kind of an accident. But as we say, there are no accidents with God. Somehow, in God's sovereign wisdom, he saw the hearts of the people in Malta. And he said, how am I going to get the gospel message to that island? I know. How about a storm? I don't think he works that way. But I think he takes something that was bad and turns it to something good. The good that we can see from this is that the whole nation of Malta, now for thousands of years, has known the message of Christ, which was brought to them through Paul. It's amazing how God weaves together the good and the bad for his purposes. Amen? So when we're going through our struggles, we have to remember God's doing some work here. Even when I don't see it, he's working. You know, that was the song we sang earlier. Even when I don't feel it, he's working, right? He's able to do above or beyond what we could even fathom in our minds. He's that good. Amen? Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray that it has encouraged our hearts today. Those who are going through difficult times, Lord, give them strength and encouragement. Those of us who have difficult times ahead, help us to remember this lesson and to have our faith, like Paul did, anchored in Christ, anchored in your word and what you have said to us, and not be shaken by anything that happens. Lord, you don't keep bad things from happening to Christians. They still happen to us, but our perspective is different. Our perspective is to keep our focus on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. So God, seal this work to us by your spirit, we pray. Amen. 